Colour 2 podcast is back after a successful first season for season two. I'm really looking forward to visiting new and exciting locations. I've been to London, Sydney, Taipei, Hong Kong, Manhattan, seeking out colourists who have an interesting tale to tell. Ready to have some fun? If you look inside you can see every possible colour. Welcome to the Colour 2, episode 10, East Village colorist Dario Biggi. I really like this podcast because this is really what the Colour Tour is about. We spend a long time talking about the East Village and what it is like to live and work there. We go to Literally's local cocktail bar, which is 200 yards down the road from his apartment. Dario has a home grading space. We talk about how that works, how he calibrates his gear. He gets into a really interesting project that he colored with mats. He also talks about why things look different in different places and how we overcome that problem. I really enjoyed it. Hope you do too. Let's listen to the podcast. So I've made it upstairs. I'm about four flights up, so you can probably hear me blowing a little bit. Um, you know, east side apartment, and this is Dario's number 4B. There's a big door. Oh, there he is. Oh, hey, how are you, is. sir? Nice to see oh, you. Welcome. Day. Please come in. Hey, man. Good to hey, see man. you. This is your pad. This yeah. is your digs. This is it. Welcome to the East Village. Oh. It's good to be here. There you go. Cool digs, yeah. man. Yeah, no, it does, does me well. Well, that's it, that's it. All right, so where are the beers? <laughs> As you hear the fire trucks and the yeah. world rolling oh, by. Yeah. Did you order those trucks? Exactly, they're New York, the flavor of New York. <laughs> right. Dario. Cheers. Cheers. So, uh, welcome to the uh, color tour. Now, we normally start looking at a monitor and a panel and scopes and yeah, that's all a bit boring really, isn't it? When you can, <laughs> you can come and sit here and we're looking out across lower Manhattan, there's the Freedom Tower, there's Wall Street, the sun is setting. Mate, this is a beautiful spot. It's, um, I'm very, very fortunate and I'm really happy to be here and also, what everybody always says is, and I've listened to you some often with, you always try and get your influence from nature that um, when you want to kind of take a break and get out, I used to, in certain rooms, I would try and look out a window or find a window to stretch my eyes. But up here, you get to look for a few miles and you get to see an amazing gradient or a fluffy cloud or some crazy colors in the sunset due to lovely pollution. <laughs> uh, it's beautiful. It is a bit blowy, so there might be a bit of wind noise here, but I really think it's worth coming up here because this sums up what the color tour is all about you you know it's hard if you've never been here and we are as i say we are in the east village and it's uh i could say a crazy place is that a nice way of putting it yes in the, in the most positive way it's a crazy place i love it i've been here for 20 years and uh i can't picture being anyplace else even though i've been tempted several times over my lifetime and just, and like Dario said, just being able to come out of the room, escape for 10 minutes, come up, refresh yourself, get a, a check on things, and that really means a lot. And I, I do that a lot myself, and I'm sure you do as well. I do, it's good for me, and it's also good for my clients when they do attend sessions. So it's a nice little perk that uh, 
they get to only unfortunately in the the spring and the summer and the fall but never in the winter so it does limit certain things but um yeah it's great to just kind of take a moment because it's amazing when you have fresh eyes and you look at it again all of a sudden it changes oh, i yeah. always try to remind myself to even stare at the ceiling exactly every 10 minutes exactly. for a refresher yeah. and i don't do it often enough yeah it's and i sometimes old. regret it the old grey frame trick. Yeah. Now remind our listeners whereabouts is the East Village in relation to New York, Manhattan, what most people would know. So the East Village is used to be, so the East Village got named for real estate reasons. It was the Lower East Side, and that ran from essentially the entire Lower, you know, the Lower East Side started at 14th Street and ran all the way down to Chinatown. This runs from about Third Avenue all the way to the river, which is Avenue D in the famous Alphabet City, as, as outsiders call it. Yep. Um, and then um, what happened was is they renamed it and rezoned it the East Village because the village was so popular. So essentially they extended it over. And once it got renamed, instead of it being the Lower East Side, which was infamous, and it became the East Village, it started to get gentrified. And that was about 25, 30 years ago. And I moved in about 20 years ago. I was fortunate enough to have the tenacity and wherewithal to buy in in about 1999. And um, I watched it change before that, and I watched it change after that. I remember when you couldn't even get a cab on First Avenue. I'm sorry, on Avenue A, because they wouldn't pick you up because it was too sketchy. And now, of course, it's restaurants and bars and cafes and much more friendly and family friendly. So this was one of the more dodgy areas in New York. Yeah, this was um, right across the street from my apartment is the building that is the cover of the Led Zeppelin physical graffiti album. Right. And cool. this is where they used to come in the 70s to buy to score yes. uh, illicit items. Oh, so this imagine. was the white block for all the drugs, actually, <laughs> back in the 70s before my time. When I was at school in the in the 70s, New York was where you went to get murdered. Yeah, it's they used to be a they used to fish a body out of the river every day. There was they would have this was like a huge amount of murders. Now it's there's lots of assaults and other craziness still happening in the neighborhood actually. Um, so it's not safe, but no one's getting killed. Well, that's so good. it's an improvement, I guess. <laughs> We've, we've also changed a lot because now it used to be um, used to be junkies and muggers, and now it's puking debutantes and frat boys. So I don't know which is better because one doesn't stab you, but they're equally annoying. <laughs> and what's your heritage from? Where 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 were you before you came here? Um, I'm first generation, so I was born here in Flushing, Queens. Yeah. I, would, I was the last stop on the seven train. I would uh, I would cut out of high school and junior high school and take the seven train all the way into the city and hang out in the city and think I was cool. Um, and my father came from Italy. He literally jumped boat when he was about 24 back in the 50s. He was on a cruise ship. A hungry first generation New Yorker is, is, my, is my heritage. Fantastic. So how did you end up getting in the crazy world of color grading and film and TV and that's this sort of industry? I was looking into voiceover work and I didn't want to use my voice to sell products I didn't believe in because I was such an idealistic teenager. <laughs> and then I learned, about, and I loved music, so I loved, looked into audio engineering, and then finding a college that actually had audio engineering with a two-year degree with an associate's. So there was business and there was electronical engineering in it and there's music theory and a whole bunch of other stuff, which I really loved. They made a mistake on my schedule, and I had to take another class because they didn't have a, an accounting class, which was required for the business degree. So I took a video class. Oh. 
and I loved it so much, I dual majored. I put in extra time. I carried some credits forward from my last yeah. college, and I ended up having a dual, I had an audio and a video engineering degree. But that was a bit of a sliding doors moment for you. It then, was. You it kind of turned into something, and I loved it so much. And before that, I had an art background. I had gone, I had attended Cooper Union Summer Art Program, which is a really nice school here. I always had drawing and composition, you know, something as my background, but I just didn't want to starve as an artist, which is why I was looking for something else. Um, so I was looking for something a little more practical, and then I just kept chasing, you know, luckily chasing what I loved and what I was interested in. So, Just stop there to take a photograph for the light drops. The light is beautiful, isn't it? Tonight? It's really, really nice. So I found out about this cable station through word of mouth, and I showed up and I met them, and they're like, we can't pay you, but if you want to volunteer, and I said yes. I was hungry, and I was, at that point, because they desperate, but I just knew I had to do something. Yeah. So I did that for six months. So I was bartending four nights a week and volunteering three days a week. And then they finally, and I was working out of a small closet with an RM450 controller and two DV decks with a toaster video switcher. And that was me editing. And that's how I had started. From there, I went from that cable station, I got a job at the ad agency. And the agency gave me my short form chops where I was doing animatics, I was doing like all the internal pitch videos and everything else learning how the business worked from there. Agency life is a very, very different beast than cable stations and things like that. And I learned and that, that in a really interesting and way. And that was in the 60s, yeah? <laughs> that was in, uh, I don't think, honestly, <laughs> I say that it sounds so long ago because it feels like it's three lifetimes ago because I've done so many different jobs. Um, <laughs> that, was, um, that was early 90s. Right, I could. That was early 90s. So we're talking, you know, at this point, yeah. 30, you 80s? know. Pushing 30 years. I've actually a little 30, less. I've been doing 30. this for 25. So somewhere in there. I don't keep yeah. track of the years themselves. Anyway, um, to wrap that up, I was at an agency. I was there for a few years. And then I met a lot of freelancers. And every freelancer that came in, they were just like, what are you doing here? And I was really happy to be running a shop and kind of doing things to get my job done. And then um, there was a big upheaval at the agency. Somebody, Some agency bought the other agency, and there's all kinds of stuff going on. And it just wasn't the right place for me anymore, and I kind of got out. And when the process of getting out, I went freelance. And my first year after doing that, I made more money freelance than I ever did on salary, and I never looked back. Yeah. And since then, I've literally been freelancing for well over 20 years. I've yeah. only had a staff job for about two years at a, at a small boutique shop, which was a great experience. Met some great people there for a small run, and that was actually how my first color room. But in between then and everything else, I worked for cable stations, independent directors and producers. I worked on everything from promos. I had clients for over 16 years, and I had clients that would pop up and disappear as well. So you're able to keep some of them, some people you gel with. You meet lots of people along the way, and I've seen more shops open and close than no, you've probably seen more shops open and close than I have, but I've seen more shops open and close than most people. So, so. it's interesting. I was thinking coming here, you are probably the first newer breed of colorist who hasn't mm. run a telecine machine. No, I have never. I've only seen scanners yeah. sitting collecting dust as I walk by rooms and facilities. And yeah, exactly right. So I think most of the other old, like older yeah. school came up through that film, loads of film, scan the film, grade the film. I was thinking this though, when you, uh, when you, because I've listened to some of your other, other interviews and what I used to do though is when I would either offline because, or we would just rough cut and then we'd literally go back through the EDL and online, 
was I would chase my cuts with a TBC, if anybody remembers what the hell a yeah, TBC is, yeah. a time-based corrector. And I, because I was so anal, <laughs> for yeah. a lack of a better term, and also wanted it to look good, every time it, the, cha the tape would change or anything else, I would make sure that everything looked right. I would set my black levels, I would make sure it wasn't clipped, I'd make sure the skin tones looked okay, and it was a little bit more saturated than you know, then maybe it needed to be at the time, but I've learned my lesson, but that's 20 years ago again. But I used to chase stuff with a TBC. And then of course, when um, the first thing that I saw that had that kind of capability would be Symphony. I was definitely, as an Avid editor, I was big on Symphony and always doing a little tweak when I would do my passes. Um, I would definitely, you know, try and if they had this, I was trying to use their secondaries, which were always clunky, as when, when Avid was kind of slowing down and then Final Cut 7, kicked in when I went from 4.5 to Final Cut 7 they had that little triangle at the bottom of the three wheel color corrector which had a secondary <laughs> and when I saw that that was like a game changer for me and then of course Apple bought Final Touch which yeah. was Apple Color and I watched Robbie Carmen's training videos on Apple Color and that clunky tracker and all that stuff. But I was doing, I was always, I was chasing it since back then. Yeah. Where I didn't have enough wherewithal to get in the facility, but I knew, I, wa I always wanted to improve my skill set. I was yeah. always hungry enough to make things look better. I'm a storyteller at heart. Um, and, then, uh, and then Resolve. What was it? I think it was version 8 or version 9. That was yeah. the first one that was kind of available. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in there. I think it was 8 yeah. very briefly and then yeah. it was 9. So it's funny because 10 years ago every colorist would have been grading film at some stage mm -hmm. and now probably only 10% of colorists have ever graded any film. That's yeah. how the job has yeah. changed and how there's so many more people now coloring. And but also nothing's being shot on film anymore That's for right. the most part. That's so. right. So it's it's not an easy thing. And I no. have not graded anything on film for probably three years. I would say, I think it's the third feature I worked on was shot on 16 mil. And it was beautifully done by um, a very famous DP that I'll keep out of the loop just for the sake of being PC. And there's an amazing difference and a nuance that comes to it. But with that, I also, because it was an indie film, I had a hand dust bust that film with Resolve 9, you know. Yeah. So using, using the little tool of yes. removing the, I literally would be looping scenes over and over again, looking for hits and then stopping and getting Fantastic. rid of hits. You pay by the hour on that one, obviously. Oh yeah, indie <laughs> film paid by the hour. I made a fortune. No, it was um, it was a labor of love. We nearly got blown away up there, so we've <laughs> we've we've relocated uh, down to Dario's ra grading room, and we're we're in we're in there now. So, so we're we're actually in my so this is my living room, and this is a small East Village one bedroom apartment. Yeah. Um, but it's set up as an L-shaped studio, so on my wall uh, for my client monitor, I've got a BT-300. Um, it's a plasma, SDI yeah. connections. And beyond that, I was sworn to secrecy, but I'm gonna break my silence, that I had Panasonic install the, um, was it a 16-point firmware upgrade? So it does all the controls and completely calibrates itself using Calman software. Nice. And it does an amazing job. And as a matter of fact, just to impress um, Warren here, everybody complains about their monitors not like matching, oh, yeah, but I can yeah. say one thing right now. I want you to see this and... What, even from this angle? 
Um, no, it probably <laughs> won't be from this angle, but let's just say for the sake of argument, it'll be, if you want to stand up and take a look at that. I will. And let, I me, will. let me kill the lights. Yep. Um, so your clients are here on your so, sofa. Yes, yeah. he's sitting right there. Yeah. So cool. I've got a Flanders as my hero monitor yeah. for my for myself. Yes. And this monitor, this was one of my first investments when I was working at the small shop. I yeah. decided to buy the plasma myself, and I made sure I had it this way. If I ever walked, it was going to be. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? So if you want to walk up to that and walk up to that, considering it's a plasma and an OLED, you tell me how spot on two separate monitors can be when you take the time and you have the love. And step right up into the center of that. Yeah, I'm now in front of the, uh, the FSI. This is the OLED, yeah? Yes. So you got the OLED FSI up against your, your BT300, is it, plasma? Yeah, BT300 plasma. No, that's good, yeah. Yeah, I'm impressed. And you got the angle raped right for your sofa as well. You yes, don't often and see it's that. backlit, so I've got the backlighting, yeah, which have. is super important. You I've got, got the backlighting behind my monitor. So it's, I mean, it's a glorified home setup, but yeah. when I've had, and I've always been a little bit self-conscious about it in the sense of most of my clients, about 70% of my work is unsupervised yeah. anyway. Yep. And that's another reason why I was renting rooms around the city and I'd make offers and people would want to bring me in, but I realized I'm like holding on to a room and it's empty most of the time. Yeah. And I was paying an overhead that yeah. that I had to pass on to my clients that they don't have the budgets for anyway. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I've got all the gear, and I just decided to kind of be tried to push, you know, doing it from home, which is something that a lot of people don't like to hear. Right. But when people see my reel, they know my reputation and how long I've been at it and how ridiculously anal I am about it. Yeah. When they show up here, they look at that, they look at the monitors, they see my gear. And then the roof is the last little selling point of being able oh, to hang out when you're rendering. It's the old thing, you know, if you're happy, then they're happy. Yeah. If you're happy in your environment and you're yeah. producing good work, it's the same as what so, I do. So I've way. had agency people show up and they're just like, oh, wow. And they actually like it because it's homey and it's comfortable and they know they're getting the exact yeah. same quality. And, and I can guarantee it because I know matching my FSI, I feel completely comfortable. Well, let me ask you this. When, we, when the clients sit there, do you fire that fire up right under the monitor uh, there the fireplace. Well? The I, fire's I got have fire. Not, it focuses I have not. a fireplace on there. Yes, I've got a working <laughs> fireplace and a skylight. I'm very, very fortunate. Um, they ask about it, but of course, you know, that'll, that'll skew your eyes. That wouldn't be ideal, <laughs> no. It wouldn't be ideal. It'd be cozy in the winter, I know. Exactly. Lovely, but those those are for my other clients. Ideal. Now, you're calibrating this through Calman. You're doing that yourself? Yeah, so I own, I own the OEM C6 probe. Did you pull this? Did you get it close by eye in the end to get it to the FSI? Because that's what I hear with a lot of things by No, eye. actually, so here's the thing. Yeah. This, this was the big selling point for me. Putting in the firmware, yeah. it does a 16-point RGB calibration. Yeah. So it does this crazy thing. The viewers aren't going to see this, maybe even snap a photo of it. But it's... It's this crazy option. Where are you? Are you now, not? is this something that you have to pay for this firmware, or can it was a, it was it was monitor? hard to get? It took me two, it took me two years of harassing Panasonic to send somebody to get it to me, and I actually finally got so it. Is it Dario special? Then not anyone. No, can there, this? people have it because I heard about it when I was talking with like Dwayne and I was talking to other people at. Black Magic, yeah. when I was talking to people at Calman, yeah. they're like, oh, you don't have that, it's a firmware thing. And as soon as I found out that they were able to calibrate monitors, because at, at Calman they had all the monitors available to yeah. them. 
So what else you got in the room? So, so you're running. Uh, so you mentioned I'm run, Resolve. So I'm running. I'm running. Days. I actually just finally upgraded to Resolve. Um, Resolve 15.3. I'm a dot three kind of guy. I wait until they get all the bugs out because I'm. I used to. I've beta tested enough through my life. Yeah. I will never do it again. Uh, so to speak, metaphorically, not literally. Yeah. Um, and I never want to be stuck behind the eight ball because my clients come last minute and they need things fast. And yeah, yeah. I understand. So I've got a mini panel, which I was very happily upgrading from a tangent panel. Um, I've got an X24's key just for extra buttons, which has been good, but I'm thinking of upgrading that to something else, possibly a uh, the little stream box setup. I'm not yeah. really sure yet. Um, I've got... Uh, Editor's keys, um, the metal framed uh, backlit keyboard. Yes. And um, I've got some media lights behind my Flanders CM250. I've got twin 30 inch uh, monitors, and my computer is an HP Z840. I got 64 gigs of RAM. I've got an internal SSD RAID which streams at two terabytes a second, so it'll play oh, anything. Good. And I've got two early editions of Titan X cards, which are the Maxwell's, right. not the Pascal's. So they do a good job. And for the most part, I'm doing everything in real time. And that's what really counts. 4K, real time, everything works really well. Um, and then when you get into a little bit of noise reduction, which I try to do in my first node if I need I it. I noticed that, yeah. yeah that You're I, a first node noise reduction. Yeah, because once you get it out of the way, if you set that to render, then everything else after that. You can do that. Yeah, yeah so it, de it depends. And I do an ACE, I'm, I lean towards an ACES workflow more than anything else. Yes. Um, so, you know, I try if I if I do need it, and I've been push. I read some interesting articles lately, and I'm pushing everybody to try and do the overexposure record route to make sure there's no noise in the blacks. That helps. I keep hearing about it and then reading about it, and I just try to post about it because that it's easier to knock it down than to add noise reduction. I'm a big fan. Yes. Um, yes. So um, so I lean towards that, and then I kept this project up for you. So. Um, there's a TV series called Happy. Yeah. And I just I had a new client. They came out of the blue at me because they didn't want to do color in-house. They had to go a little extra. They wanted a little more, which is what everybody kind of, they want to go a little more, but they can't afford the big boys, so they come to me. That's my niche. <laughs> and, um, and, it's, uh, and it's a PSA-style spot where they're standing there talking to camera. But an interesting thing happened here, if we turn this stuff on and off. So this is Aces, yeah. and that's the look they wanted. Yes. But what happened was, if we turn that off, what happened was is they forgot on a particular shot to turn on a key light. Oh, uh, yeah. So there it is lit and there it is unlit. So I ended up, I said I raised the flag early and I said we got to send it out for mats, which I never asked too much for, but I love when I have the opportunity to. Nah. How long a section was it? How was one time? This was in terms of minutes. So what I so what I did was I made sure that I was very specific. I count. I set up the frames. I even told Rotom. I put the bid out saying it's mm. these three shots. I put them on frame IO. Yes. They were familiar with frame IO. I even yeah. gave them a frame count with handles. Yeah. Actually, I didn't use handles because it was saving money. Yep. And I did the frame count. And then they sent it back to me, and the bid was, um, you know, I think it was like 800 bucks. I've got, of course, there's the people mat, there's yes. the chicks mat. Yeah. So I'm using one to subtract from the other. Yeah. I'm combining them, I'm subtracting them. I'm even using the table. And this is a blow up, actually. So the bottom line is, wow. I'm not a fan of the edge, yeah. but all things considered, well, it's. Yeah. 
Is, is that your standard sort of no tree, or is this just the no tree you've concocted for this job? Or I have, do you have a this, ex, this expanded out of what was there. Normally, I have something, and I'll show you what I have. Since every, And it was funny, because I was kind of hearing about standard no trees a while back, and I kind of jumped on board. And then, of course, there was a big, I, I follow Lift Gamma Gain and, yeah. and all the other posts, uh, BMD. And then people started posting your no trees, which was really interesting. I kind of stick with, I have one for aces. So these are all blank. Yes. Noise reduction. Yeah. Offset. Log. Yeah. LGG lift gamma gain. Yeah. Contrast. Yeah. Sat. And then I use a DSAT where I might pull stuff out in curves. Yes. So if I boost all the color yeah. and then I can knock back what's too much. Sure. And then I get into skin tones. A nice yep. thing I learned from Kevin, CSI, yeah. Yeah. is I'll pull a key in my skin tone. Yeah. And then I'll paste that into the rest of them. And then I can control them individually, which I love. Yeah. A thing I learned from Joey Deanna, which is interesting, which doesn't apply here, is if you create all these and then you add your parallel, yes. this way when you toggle through them, it won't go to your parallel node. It'll keep going back and forth. I leave two blank notes for client notes. Yeah. The Cyan DSAT, I have a GMAP and a high DSAT are backups for when things in ACES yeah. get kind of noisy. Okay. So, and I leave them off. Right. So okay, this yeah. is just like literally, uh, I think that's going to be a Cyan key. Yes. That's going to be also in like a high saturation range. GMAP is just the effects plugin for GMAP, and I take a look and see how well it does on the scopes when it knocks things back. Right, okay. What does GMAP do? Um, it, it's a gamut map. So it's, uh, right, so here, okay. let's take a look. Oh, your gamut, the plugin, the result. Yeah, yeah, the plugin. Okay. So right, it's yeah. essentially gamut mapping. Yes. And I nice. make it so, in case anything, sometimes when people shoot, that's too out of whack. And I don't use it's, it all the time. But is that more because you're in ASIS, or is that, does it make any difference? You use that anyway. I leave it off, and then if my scopes look a little whacked, I'll toggle it, see what it does, and if it's screwing with it too much, I'll leave a customizer to tweak it, or if it's a safety, I just let it, like a, it's like a safety clamp on yeah. a very rare occasion. It's just there. I don't use it too often. Yeah. High DSAT as well is just an overall key for high saturation. can turn it on and off. And then I have a vignette, um, which is just sharpening in the center. Yes. And then the outside is a tiny bit of, for me, Normally, it's actually, it's not, that's a little bit offset down. Normally, I'll just knock it down on the luma curve a tiny right. bit. Yeah. And then I leave a high soft on the end just in case if yeah. I just want to do a clip. And I just leave that there. So for me, usually this is enough, especially when I was doing a TV show and I was burning through shots. Like if I have to do, yeah. I, was, I was getting a 700 shot Sandy show. Anyway. And then of course, you set it to jump the match clips going back yeah. and forth. Yeah. And I would just, it's in my first. It's in my first preset. Add it to everything. Yeah. Um, make sure it's there because when you jump back and forth and it doesn't have it, it'll screw you up because then you're not at the same note again. Exactly. But I leave it. But my yeah. first thing is, and I just turned someone else onto this. I love starting with. That's why I got the the um, the, the mini panel because yeah. tangent didn't have offset options. Yeah. I since I started starting with offset, right. and if I just rock it right into the yeah. skin tones being in the right place, everything else is fairly close enough where you can get your highs and your lows where you want. But yeah. to me, aces with the camera preset, if you, yep. of course, finding out what their proper cameras are, yes. That's offset, true. you are off to the races. Yeah, and then be. from there, you just get to just yeah. nudge it. And for the guys, uh, listen, these uh, preset no trees, Dario's got a, all built in his power grade. So yeah. you've got a few in there. So they're all pre-built on the power grade. Yeah. And he just 
uh, clicks them up for what type of job he's doing and exactly. what sort of background it is. So and they're blank and they're just names. Yeah, so that's to it. me, not, it just keeps me fluid going through each not, shot. They're not hurting anything if you don't use them. But yeah. I think it is really the only way you can get through a job. If you, you're not going to do it otherwise, you're going to be too slow. Yeah. So you're either not going to get asked back or you're going to be too slow and not going to make any money on the job. And also, you know, then I mean, especially if you got a job that's going to last even, you know, sometimes it's going to take you a day or two, depending on if it's like a show. You want to remember what you did to which shot. Also, I happen to like having it separated so much is by toggling that node on and off, you know what you're doing within that node and you can see if it's too much or too little. And then that within a three camera shoot, that camera angle just needs the same thing but a different exposure. That camera angle just happens to have too much yeah. red in it. Yeah. And all you have to do is change that one node, not search for it. Yeah, and yeah. when you toggle it on and off, you can see the difference. And you then you it. just kind of, I love being creative, but a lot of times we no. can't. We have to just be efficient. No, 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 no. So, I, I agree, I agree. So, and okay. so this is, and then for me also, back to the apartment and the space, I have blackout curtains behind my skylight. Yes. I have blackout curtains, all the windows when a client's sitting here. And if not, I did a hospital curtain set up around me. So in the daytime, all I do is roll this curtain out, yeah. and I'm in a completely dark room. So, you know, same 24 hours. Yeah. And then I've got it's elevated so the heat can get out over the top, like yeah. hospital curtains. And I just sit down. And then if not, I just open it up. I have lunch, nice. or I roll it away, and it goes onto a shelf. And my living room is my living room again. This table slides underneath. Beautiful. This tucks to the side, and it's all compact, and it goes away. So it's like almost Japanese Tokyo-style efficient <laughs> living. <laughs> because it's New York and space is well, limited. I know, I know what it's like. So, all right, so uh, cool. let's let's go go and get some food. Let's yeah, get, yeah, let's get a drink and get Great. some food. Excellent. Let's do that. The International Colors Academy specializes in classroom training around the world. The classroom is the ultimate way to learn. So whether you want to become Resolve certified or learn the subtleties of HDR grading, the ICA has a class for all levels, beginner to master class. You can find us at iColorist.com. So, so we're, so, uh, we're, walking, uh, we're walking east down St. Mark's from 1st Avenue, closer to Avenue A. I'm going to try and get into a little place called Please Don't Tell. Yeah. It is uh, a little cocktail joint, and it's a nice, great place to bring clients because it's quiet and exclusive, and it's got a nice, you know, it's not packed full of people ever because they only do sitting, no standing. Oh, yeah. It's not a not a pickup scene, and um, and just like uh, just like color correction, it's like this is the cocktails are a little expensive, but you're getting a high quality in a very exclusive environment, made done really really well, yeah. and you can go get a cocktail anywhere or you can get a drink anywhere but here you know it's getting done right and it's delicious we had none right there there's literally there's literally wall-to-wall -wall places down the street here where we are we're going downstairs now just dropping in so this is in a little place called thrift dogs it is a hot dog joint and then of uh, several years back when the whole cocktail high-end cocktail scene came on we got uh, elevated. 15 minutes? We'll wait for it? We'll wait for it. Thank you so much, sweetheart. Thank you. Okay. Here we go. All right. You hungry? You want a hot dog? No, no. <laughs> okay. They got veggie dogs too? Yeah. So back when the, um, back when the uh, whole cocktail, um, high-end cocktail scene kind of kicked in, there was Milk and Honey, there were some other places where they just started really getting into really making originally good cocktails again. This place came on the scene, so you're entering through a phone booth that's buried in a wall, 
and you can't just walk in, you have to have reservations. There's only seats about 30 people, and they make excellent drinks, and they also have exclusive hot dogs, which are different than on that side that are on this side of the bar. It's quiet. Um, it's just a nice atmosphere. It's great for clients. So they have booths that can fit like five to eight people. We're literally like, you know, 300 feet from your apartment, aren't we? 300 feet from my apartment. We're about six feet underground because we're, we're on a walk-in. We've got low ceilings. Everything smells like grease on this side of the wall. And we're going to walk into a room, which is this beautiful little cocktail bar on the other side. And clients love it. I hope we can get in there. Oh, somebody's going in the phone booth now. They're going into the, into the phone booth, picking up the phone, dialing once, it looks like, and see what happens. And then the back door opens up. And then if you have a reservation, they let you in. So mate, we have relocated and we've got through the phone booth and we are in BDT, known as Please Don't Tell. So let's ask me this, let's get back. So yes. you were coloring in Avid before you were coloring in Resolve. Was it Avid that you'd used? Yeah, so I, I originally, like I said, I kind of started with TBCs. I got into using Symphony and um, was fumbling through Symphony. And then with that, I got into using uh, Final Cut 7 because Final Cut started kind of being more prominent in the, in the freelance indie world. And then the secondaries in there were great for me. And that's when I found Alex Van Herpen's book on color correction and went through that. I read the digital, I mean, this is all back when they were first coming out. I read the digital handbook. I read Alex's book. Um, I, like I said, Steve I was Steve Holfish's book. Hmm? Steve Holfish. Yes, yeah, Steve Holfish's yeah. book, which Good is also Steve. an excellent read. Also available. Yes. Both books available. I and, must... and they've updated them. And anybody who's listening to this who's not fully in the business, do your homework. Read the manual, read the training books, get as much information as much as you can. There we go. How are you? Nice to see you. Hello. That's Kansas City Star. That's me. Thank you. Hey, look at that. And we'd love to put an order in that for some food. Two bacon wrapped John John Deerigans. And uh, order a tater tots. Well done, please. Thank you so much. Apple, I mean, I had hopes. That, I mean, they were, I was hoping that they were going to upgrade Apple Color and make improvements to that before Resolve was even available because it had its moments, but it was just, it was like beating your head against it. But it was also the best thing out there at the moment for somebody who didn't couldn't afford a half million dollar system. It totally was. Yeah. Um, it was Final funny because yeah. when I first used it, the, the guy in a post house, I did a two or three dramas on it and we're probably looking 2007 I'd say yeah. pre-result and the owner of the post house uh, Blue Post he almost apologised to me about asking me to go and work on Apple Colour right? and I said I'll come down and see your shop and he had a, he had a CRT monitor he had a nice room and I said don't be like that it works for me it's a color corrector. I'm not bothered about what I'm using. They shot nicely, and I did a few shows with those guys, and it never bothered me. But so many people at that time were going, "You've used Apple Color. What's it like? It's rubbish, isn't it?" I mean, admittedly, those guys did have probably they had the higher end jobs, or they were selling the competition. Sure. I mean, I mean, overall, if you didn't have to do any tracking, yeah. It was great. I mean, now we're so used to our windows following everything and we can animate and we can keyframe. We're spoiled. And that's another thing circling back around too. Everybody I see on the boards, people just complain about a keystroke that they're doing wrong and they haven't read the manual. And I've gotten, and I've not gotten into a flaming war, but I've made my, I've made my statements yeah. of just like, 
everybody should, I'm in a white paper guy for the longest time. I came from nothing. I fought my way into this business and I'm still even fighting to stay here because there's a lot of competition and that's fine. I'm a New Yorker. I'm willing to scrap it out. But have some, be grateful and make a little bit of effort and learn what the craft from the inside out. And you said to me, you were almost, you didn't want to say you were a colorist for a while. Yeah, so, so yeah, so for me, like as an editor colorist, it took me, like, I, I wasn't even, I, I was able to get my first color jobs because I was an editor, because I would pitch my clients and say, let me tackle it for you. If I don't do a good job, by all means, go someplace else. Yeah. And I see editor, editors doing that now as color correction, so I, I can respect that. In the same sense, I did not want to call myself a colorist until a certain point where I felt, I wasn't an editor colorist until about three years after starting to do color correction. And then when I finally was an editor colorist, I was still, still humble or, or dare I say fearful or reticent because I was looking at guys like you, or Les Rudge, or any of the other big boys, you know, hearing, reading articles about Steven Sonnefeld and, and Nakamura, and like, I'm like, these guys are 30, and who, who's the who's the crazy guy, the, the really talented guy out there's in California? There's also crazy guys. Uh, in all, Cali all, crazy all, guy in California. We're all, we're all crazy Come on, Mario, let's, let's leave in, in, that there. Well, we're all in, we live in dark rooms, we're just vampires. <laughs> but um, he, he makes a game show out, I heard he makes a game show out of his, his color room. He's like, okay, door number one, door number two, door number three, to rally, anyway. Okay important yeah, yeah. <laughs> the point being is to be able to run a room and to be able to manage clients and to be able to do all that fluidly tell stories while you're working is a craft which is developed over time and I knew I couldn't even say I was a, a colorist until I was doing it for a significant amount of time where I felt comfortable there are people now that just say oh I have resolve and I'm a colorist and I I do take issue with that because even for me now that I've been doing it nine years, I almost feel like now, nine years in, knowing kind of where I stand in the industry, now I feel like I'm a colorist. Maybe like a year or two ago, like now I feel like I can confidently know I can hold my own, I know enough, and I still want to learn more. I still have a ton of things to learn, which is why I love the craft, just like editorial. But it's taken me a long time to be able to really feel like I can say that, especially in the group of peers that I respect and admire. You know, you being one of them and all these other guys out there that have been doing it for 30 years. So, and I left editing too. So I always, I'm always an editor at heart, a storyteller, but it's, um, you just can't say you're a colorist. Just like you can't say you're an editor. Just because you put two images together doesn't mean you're an editor. There's a craft to it. Now, what's the rates like here in New York? Is it stabilized? Do you get a bit more? Do you get a bit less? Do you go, this is my rate card, boom? How, do you, how does it work? I, I'm, I is have, it on um, your website? What's the deal? No, so it's always a negotiation. And I have, um, I, I'm, I have mixed feelings about how to talk about this because depending on who's going to listen to this. Um, only for, we've only got four listeners. That's good. Well, then in that case, I mean, so I, I look at it, I've, I've, been, I've been trying to figure this out for a while because even as editorial rates have dropped significantly, I've looked at, I'm still seeing postings for, I'm seeing postings for jobs just the other day. So I'm on the editor boards, so because this way I can say I can offer up colorist work to yeah. a job that's in post production. And what I've seen is I'm seeing job rates that were my job rate from over 20 years ago. Yeah, 
they're, they've dropped significantly. There's a lot of people creating content. There's a zero budget. They're paying editors $400 or a day or less. Is this, this offline editing or what we used to call finishing editing or both? They, they want, they want, I've seen jobs for writer, producer, editors, predators, assistant editors, editors, all at the most ridiculously low rates I've ever seen. But is the higher end stuff still the same? Because there's loads so, of yes. work. No, yes. So on that note, I also know some really high-end commercial editors that can still command two to three thousand dollars a day, agency work. So that's out there. But that is a very small market. And even and even with that, in the conversations I've had with those men and women who do that, is that. I got one really interesting phrase out of it, and I'll kind of get to that in a second, but they they don't, they'll even say to a client, because clients are always just saying, oh, well, how much do you charge? And, and people are coming back saying, listen, it's like, why don't you just tell us what your budget is, and we'll, say, and we'll tell you if we can back into it. Because the, and that's an interesting phrase, I will back into your budget. Because they're already, everybody's already trying to negotiate. Everybody, some clients just immediately offer half as much because they just want to save money. And there's enough hungry people out there that went to, to film school and aren't working that they're willing to do anything to make their bones. Just like I was making my bones working my ass off. And I get it, but there's a little bit of a glut in the industry, which how capitalism works, it drives the work down. Anyway, I say, agency-wise, I bid up against, and I get, for the big three or four companies that are in town, I keep getting them, I keep getting clients coming back to me because those companies drop the ball a little bit. So I've been told. I have not seen it. Okay. But they go there, clients go there, and they feel like they're getting a la carte, nickeled and dimed on everything that's going on. And that's something that I don't do to my clients. I like, look, here's the Wi-Fi. Deliverables, my computer is so fast, it renders so fast, I don't charge for render time. I'm sitting there having a cocktail with them on the roof, or I'm happy to have the job because overall my overhead is so low that I just kind of spit out a file. If it's a movie, it's a different story. But we're talking about commercials, Frame.io upload times, things like that. I love Frame.io. Thank, thank you to the boys at Frame.io. You enable me to do everything remotely. My clients love it. <laughs> and I keep training people how to use it, and everybody really loves it. So on that note, I just had a complaint from somebody the other day because I bid on a job. And he's like, and he snarkily said, who do you think you are? And I'm like, pardon me? I was like, this is what Marina, he goes, well, there's another famous colorist who's not sure, you're charging three times as much. And I'm like, I'm not him and I don't care if he's famous. I know what, I'm, I, know what I do and I know who I'm competing with. So on that note, the bottom rate for the high-end shops in New York is like six to $500 an hour. Like that's how low they will go. And of course, everybody will pick up on a small, job if the, the slot's open, there's an open window, yeah. Yeah. they'll try and squeeze some stuff and everyone's always filling the time, just like yeah. myself. Sometimes I don't fill my time and I come hang out with you and we go drinking. Well, yeah. Sometimes I go to my roof and I do the gardening. I don't have an overhead, so I don't have to, I don't have to hustle as much, but I still always want to be working. Me, my asking rate, agency-wise, is 300 an hour. Yes. And then from there, if somebody's got a budget and they say we only have X, I 
take a second. Well, let me take a look at the cut. I always, I'm very cautious. Let me look at the cut. Let me see what's there. I take the cut. I load it into Resolve. I auto scene cut detect it. I see how many shots it is. I start looking at the shots and see what's wrong with them. And then with that, I'll estimate anywhere from five to even 10 minutes a shot. And the reason why I say five to 10 is because there's one minute for loading. There's one minute for grading. There's one minute for problem solving. There's emails. There's everything that goes on involved with it. And with that, and then there's reviews. And then there's rendering and then there's upload time. So if you have all the shots and you think about anywhere from five to 10 minutes a shot, you can get an idea of roughly how long it's gonna take. And then you can think if their budget's worth it or not to you. And then you can say, unfortunately I'm booked or unfortunately this has to be done in off hours. I agree. Well, that's all part of their pitch to you, isn't it? Like it's their pitch to you. This is, we've got X amount of dollars. Here's our cut. This is what I've done. This is what, what about, what's your thinking on working for free? Yeah. I don't work. Well, you know what? It's been a long time since I have. But what I do ask is, like, let's say they have no money, and I and I say and I say it pretty simply. I was like, well, do me a favor. I was like, make an offer. I like your project, and so this is when it comes to a project that I work on. If and my other dialogue is, look, if it's a if it if it's gonna become a passion project for me to work for little or no money, I have to like it. So one, I need to see it, and two, you know, nobody has no money. So I'll not know, I was just like, and I just say, look, make me an offer. And when people see how hard I work, and I'm doing it in off hours, I'm happy to squeeze stuff in, somebody comes up with something. And honestly, let's say, the, 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 the smallest offer I ever got on a short film, they came up with like 800 bucks after the fact. But I saw this short, I love this short, the producer was great, I was doing it in my off hours, had a great time with them, I'm still very proud of it. And that bond, He's a commercial director. He's come back to me several times and done jobs. All I say is just please pitch it properly, pitch it seriously, pitch it your DP, your director, your producer, not a two-word email, you know, aha, smiley face, I've got no money, bet you don't want to do it. You know, just try and be professional about pitching it. If you're pitching to it, not to, to any colorist yeah. or anybody in the interest, you're asking for a favor, do the right thing and pitch it properly to that person. And also be flexible with them. So for me, if I've got, if your project looks amazing or, or you're really cool to work with, or I see you have creative wherewithal because we've, I've been doing, been in a dark room post-production for over 20 years. You know when something looks right, you know when it's shot right, you know when it's paced right, that I want to work with you if you can be flexible with my time so I can make my commercial rates and then I want to squeeze you in when I'm exhausted doing four hours a night or I want to squeeze you in on a Saturday after a long, long week yeah. or all of a sudden my, my TV series just wrapped up and I've got some open time. If you can wait a week, I'm happy to squeeze you in because I want to work with you. Yeah. And you can say that to the clients. Yeah. Uh, we're stopped for food, but you're not talking New York Italian enough. You, you, want me to, you want me to talk like this, like I'm from Brooklyn? I yeah. can do that. Yeah. Let me eat my freaking dog and we can yeah. stop fucking talking and maybe curse yeah. a little bit and I want some tater tots yeah. and we're going to have our drinks. We'll yeah, wrap we this did. puppy up. Yeah, we just got an explicit on iTunes, I think, for that one. All right, cool. Beep that puppy out. How do you deal with your clients in the room? Do you have a certain approach with them? Do you have a... Every client is different. Yeah, so there's no style. It's every... Every job. Well, so so to circle back 
right now, currently this last season, this season, as a right right now this season, I've had no supervised edits, no supervised clients. Last season, I, I was about 70 to 80% unsupervised. Most stuff was posted on a Frame.io or was put to their pages. We went back and forth. I would get very happy to get clear notes. Very, if they're not clear, I, I make sure that I, you know, kindly word or ask the right questions in the right way um, and get clear answers to see what somebody's looking for. I've had jobs that got completely after I've done exactly what they wanted flipped on their heads and gone to a whole different direction as maybe those of us who've been doing this long enough we all have um, when it comes to clients um, I was raised by an Italian mother so I'm hospitable you walk in can I get you a water can I get you a coffee I make a really good espresso I make an excellent cappuccino I love my cocktails because as much as I'm, I love mixing colors and editorial and going down to the frame or going down to the knit, I make sure that when I mix my cocktails, I'm using a jigger and I measure every, I use good ingredients and I measure everything properly. It's how I live my life. Um, so if you treat your clients with respect and you kind of listen, I mean, honestly, people don't listen enough these days. Listen, listen to what they want, but also feel. Oh, we have some new people entering the bar. But it's about, but it's about, you have to listen to beyond what they're saying. You have to look at their eyes. You have to, you can, there's a body language too where people, you know, you want people's, people's shoulders to drop. You want them to relax. Tell me about your ceiling theory. What's the thinking there? Say again? Your ceiling theory. Look at the ceiling. Oh, so yeah. So for me, it's just like every once in a while when I know a client is, I'm looking at my monitor, I know they're calibrated and there's, and they're staring at it too long. I'm like, okay. I hit black and I'm like, okay, we're taking a break. And they're like, what do you mean? It's like, I want you to close your eyes or I want you to stare up at the ceiling. And my ceilings are a neutral gray, behind my monitors are gray. And I'll say, we gotta take a, a, a break. And he's like, why? I go, because our eyes are, it's like, I've been here, I've been doing this long enough, our eyes are drifting. And tomorrow it's gonna look completely different. So we've, we're, we're forgetting to reset our eyes. And, what I want to do and I haven't done yet is I want to save one or two still images as an optical illusion because when you start playing optical illusions with people and they realize that their eyes are completely lying to them, then they learn to trust you. And if you reset somebody's eyes and say, okay, now look at it, and they're like, wow, it looks completely different. Right. Like, give yeah. them 10, 20 seconds, yeah. put their head back. Even if you put their head back, yeah. the eyes, the blood drains from your head a little bit in a different way. It's a reset. And then they look at it, and then you start toggling things. And again, because I use the note tree that's individual per clip, I, I don't use... I use bypass all, I don't use disable all. And the reason I use bypass is because it'll still hold on to renders and it won't screw up any any grades. It just bypasses the color look. So one of my buttons in the X24 is a bypass, not disable. I use disable node per node, but then I have it to bypass all. And with that, you can turn everything on and off or you can disable a node and then everybody kind of sees, okay, that's not purple anymore or it's not yellow anymore because they've been staring at the one point of the frame. I also emphasize that they have to back up. When you're looking at an image and we're fixing a window off to the side, no one's looking at that. They look, the first thing you see is the brightest part, and the first thing you see is eyes. And you're making eye contact with the human being. 
So look at that and then don't stare at it. Go wider and feel the image. What do you say to client? You say you do a lot of stuff on your own without yeah. clients. What do you do when they say, well, I'm looking at it in my office. It doesn't look like, uh, it doesn't look right. Or I'm not sure about it. It doesn't look he good here. How do you get around that? I've, I've gotten... Should I talk like a New Yorker or should I talk oh, like... Oh, yeah. no. right. Okay, the New York, the New York, the shorthand New York, I've gotten screwed by that and I've also had some benefits with that. Or I've gotten bleeped by that or not. Yeah. I've also... It depends. Certain people are just like, they're sitting in a room with an uncalibrated monitor on a wall plugged into a computer. They've got a laptop and an iPad. They all don't match and they're complaining about it. And you have to, what I have done successfully and unsuccessfully is said what the problem is. It's the nature of the industry, it's what's going on. If you put your <coughs> iPad or phone into night mode, it's completely different. You're dealing with an older monitor that's probably been left on, you have a DVI, all kinds of other stuff. So you have to kind of just lay it out. Please, and I emphasize to all my clients, please watch it on a proper monitor. Do you have an editing system? I'm glad you're looking at it here. Download it onto your edit system. Make sure that the bars look right on your you're edit put, system. You're putting bars on the top. I, if, I, if, if there's room at the top, I put bars at the top. If their editors are starting at zero and if everything starts at the zero count, I tack bars onto the end. Yes. And I've had this happen, and I actually lost a $25,000 job because I tacked bars onto the end. They were the, the producer was in my room that day. They loved it. They approved everything. I rented it out. They had it the next day. The, sorry, the creative director and the producer. The producer was out sick the next day. He was my advocate. The creative director was busy taking care of other things. And the next day, they showed it to everybody in the facility, and it looked wrong. And they never called me to find out why. They never and I and I and I finally had crickets for 24 hours and then the following day they said they were going to another company and I'm like what what happened the producer was back in after being sick that day he found out that they were looking at it and they kind of it does not look the way it did when we were in my suite and I was like okay why was it the and of course you go online you start figuring stuff out where was it the data video shift that happens with dnx hd or hr depending on the bit rate was it the fact that the xml going back to premiere was carrying forward the grades what was it because if you tack on bars into an xml that xml will not have any color correction on those bars and then you reach out to the editor and you say, what do the bars look like? Can you see the pluge? And of course, if you say, can you see the pluge? Unfortunately, 90% of the editors today don't know what a pluge is. Yeah. And again, back to our conversation about, in a way, positively encouraging people and educating them. It's like, okay, look down to the right. See that little thing there? Can you see at least one so, gray bar? So if you're looking in uh, Resolve, there's a generator. Yes. Uh, in the gener effects tab, generators, simty bars, drag that in. Uh, you have to drag it in and then you have to render it as a clip because yeah. if you leave it in as a generator, it doesn't show up in your timeline. So uh, what I've done is I've rendered that out in many, I've rendered it out as HD and 4K and UHD. 
and I always access it because also, if you're in an Aces timeline, you have to assign your bars to be seven or nine if you're in an Aces timeline. So again, and this is where we get into craft and this is where we get into technical stuff where you have to do this, there's a lot of steps to do this right, to cover your ass, to make sure that what's going out is proper. And then when somebody says you've done it wrong, you can point to it and you can say, well, look, the XML is incorrect. Yeah. Or your editor did not flag this because if you look at the bars, they're proper. Yeah. So let's talk about CSI. You're a member of CSI. Yes. You're an one of your earliest members of CSI. You're an active member of CSI. Yes. What are your thoughts about it and how active is it here in New York and where do you think it's going? CSI. Colorist Society yes. International. Colorist Society International. The idea behind CSI, I love the idea behind it. And the problem I'm finding with CSI right now is there's not a unified voice. Everybody, you know, even me, I had to think about, well, somebody asked me, one of my clients, like, oh, what's CSI? And I, and I had to stop and think, what was I even gonna respond as to what is CSI? And I went back to the site because I posted something because I was trying to organize a bunch of CSI members here in New York. And um, we have about 27 members total in this area. And I put the word out to just try to do a gathering because why not? I'm a freelancer, I've got a little bit of free time. It's looking out for the colorists. It's trying to give us, as crafts people, um, some representation. And not as a union, but as a, uh, you know, as like, I, I don't want to use, overly use the word, but it's like as artisans, like I come from my family in Italy, like Michelangelo didn't carve the David. They had a bunch of guys take this block of marble and shape it down into a close to being a man, and then he shaved the bottom half of it. They're artisans. So with us, you know, we, there's, there is a craft to our work. And CSI is trying to explain that to people so we're not railroaded. In the same sense, I going back to the editor colorist role that I started as, there are a lot of editor colorists out there that are just, a lot is not a color correction, okay? Auto, calib auto white balancing is not a color correction. If you have to burn through something really fast, I completely get it. But if you're only doing that, I'm sorry, you're not doing color correction and you're not a colorist. If you live it, if you're doing it for years, if you hone your craft, just like as an editors respectfully, as in directors respectfully, producers, everybody in the business, when you do it long enough and you're not doing anything else, you know when you're actually it. And with CSI, the one thing I like about it is that even now we have a couple of people showing up to the New York meeting. They're like, well, I'm only, you know, a, a part-time member. Or I'm only, you know, I'm trying to get into CSI. You know, can you look at my work? Can you approve me? And it's like, well, if I can take the time to look at somebody's site, go through all their work, and I do, and I can also, honestly, I would want to vet their clients because some people lie, but you can see when somebody's work is kind of consistent. You can also see their style a little bit. Yeah. And I've seen some work out there that blows my mind. So CSI is on the right, yes. on the right way, but it just needs direction into well, the message. 
I think if it, it needs more of a message. I think the message is there, but we're all too busy. I mean, we're not, we're not unified. It's, if you read the site, it says what it's doing. But we might want it to do more, but we're not doing anything about it. So from my small corner of the world, I know there's some other great people out there. Nikolai Waldman, who does amazing coding. Yeah. And he does amazing. He creates apps. I mean, all these guys. Also, a big shout-out to Paul Dore, who creates these amazing OFX. Yeah. A big shout-out to everybody on the boards, Mike Wellich, Mark Wellich, everybody who like spends their time to actually share their knowledge. Thank you so much for me, because I learned so much. It's inspirational. And in the same sense, everybody who doesn't do that, do more of that. Don't answer it quickly. Think about your answers and make it count. Back to CSI. It needs, um, we need to think what we want to do about it or with it. I don't feel personally that we should be getting credits for, uh, somebody said we should be nominated for um, Academy Award. And it's a conversation that needs to be had over drinks. And honestly, jobs vary too much where some colorists are doing so many windows and there's an entire team of people and they make a film look completely different. It's a craft unto itself. Other people are saving DPs and it makes a DP look bad. It'll never happen. It's a whole different thing. It's too wide a gap. But scaling it back from that, to have a CSI credit in IMDb, I think was a great thing that CSI accomplished. I think having some industry discounts is great. But I think we're all too busy, just even like myself, even trying to get this New York chapter together as a meeting has taken several, several hours and lots of emails and efforts. And it's time that I'm, I'm eking and squeaking out to make happen. So a big shout out to um, Kevin. To Kevin. Oh, so sorry, sorry, because I keep thinking Nick Shaw. It's Kevin Shaw. Steve Shaw and Nick Shaw yeah, and Kevin Shaw. There's all these, you know. Exactly. And then my favorite actor, which would have been... Uh, sure. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think we need You're a bigger boat. You're not sure what show you want, are you, Daria? We, need a, bigger, we need, we need a bigger boat, and I need <laughs> yeah. a bigger cocktail. There <laughs> you go. So, <laughs> so mate, it's been, it's been really good. So where can people find you? Because you, you, it's been really good. Your insights into color grading. I'm, I'm DariaBG.com. Essentially, you type, in, you type in Daria. I'm lucky that I have a unique name. I hated it as a kid. I love it as an adult. You type in Dario and Colorist and you might get a very flamboyant man in Brooklyn who does hair color, or you might find me. But if you do Dario Colorist, or if you do Dario Biji, it's B-I-G-I, or you do Freelance Colorist New York, I'll show up on a page. Um, my reel is a little bit dated. Right now I have a, I just wrapped up a big job, so I'm actually finally working on my reel, which is a little bit behind the times. But in the same sense, new clients never know your reel is old. One good tip for everybody, never put a timestamp stamp on your reel. Your color reel is color reel or colorist reel. Don't put a year. Don't put it in the title. Don't put it at the end. Don't put it on your page that way. This way, when you can't get to it for two years, it's all good. Cheers, mate. It's been great. Thanks a lot, chatting. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please tune in next month for another edition. If you have enjoyed the pod, then please leave feedback on iTunes or iColorist.com. Who would you like to see featured on the next Color Tour podcast? You can contact me at Color Tour Pod on Twitter.